0: Welcome to the Restoration Living Podcast with our host, military chaplain and spiritual care director, James Johnson. With so many voices in this world fighting for our attention, it's easy to believe that we aren't good enough, that our past will always haunt us, and that we will never measure up. But the voice of God is telling us that we can live a life of restoration in Him. Our Heavenly Father doesn't want us to let our past decisions determine our present peace. Instead, He wants us to find that life of restoration in Him. So grab your Bibles and join us as we dig into God's Word to discover timeless truths and proper application for our lives today. Welcome back to the Restoration Living Podcast, and we're going to get back today into our study through the book of Revelation. We took a break for a little bit, and now we are getting back at it, and I hope this is blessing you. I hope that you're enjoying digging deep into this often overlooked or misused and oftentimes abused text of the Bible. The book of Revelation, like we said, is an apocalypse. And as we've been journeying through this, we've seen how it follows the pattern of an apocalypse, that John is the person given this vision of heaven, and he sees spiritual things that are symbolic representation of earthly realities, that John sees fantastical imagery that symbolizes earthly things that are going on on the planet. And when we left off last time, we were looking at how John had seen, as we finished chapter five, John had seen the scroll that was in the right hand of the one on the throne. And we know that's God, right? God is surrounded by his divine council of elders. He's got the four living beings around him. That that after the letters that that John saw, um or excuse me, that John saw Jesus in the the spiritual temple, right, walking among the the lampstand, that he was given the letters to seven churches in the province of Asia, right, in modern-day Turkey, and then he sees a vision of God on his throne. And we talked about how all of these are references to the book of Ezekiel, the book of Isaiah, the book of Daniel, all of these Old Testament references that are connecting the reader back to earlier apocalyptic passages. But then, as John is watching the, the person on the throne, God, holds in his right hand, the hand of authority, a scroll. And as we finished chapter 5, we were looking at that scroll. So if you've got your Bible, turn to Revelation chapter 6, and we'll pick up where we left off. And while you're turning there, let me remind you what that scroll was and why it was so important. That the scroll was had writing on the inside and the outside, and it had seven seals on it. Now, the only document at that time that would have writing on the inside and the outside and would have seals on it to keep it closed is a land deed. That a land deed would be written up between the person that was selling it and the person that was buying it. They would agree to it and there would be witnesses. Witnesses would sign the inside and the outside. And then a magistrate would put their seal on it. They would pour wax on the area where the paper you know, rolls up and, and the, where the fold of the paper is, the edge of the paper of the scroll, of the papyrus, excuse me. And they would pour wax on it and they would imprint it with their seal, either from a signet ring or a stamp that had their magisterial rank on it. The higher the the, the official, the magistrate, that was sealing the land deed, the the more seals it would have. And so this land deed has seven seals. That means that it requires full authority because seven is the number of totality of of 100% fullness. And so it would require full and total authority to open this land deed. And John begins to weep. Now, why does John care so much about this one land deed? Aren't there tons of land deeds? Well, think about it. If God on his throne is holding the land deed, what's the only land agreement that God has ever made with people? God owns everything, right? All of heaven and earth. What deal did God ever make with property and and, and, and with anyone here on the planet? And and that would have to be the Abrahamic covenant, right? We talked about how the Abrahamic covenant— in our series on covenants considering covenants we talked about how Abraham was given the promise of God that through him a nation would rise up that would be the vehicle God used to redeem the whole planet and the land that he was leading Abraham to would be promised to those people so the Abrahamic covenant and the Palestinian covenant also called the land covenant combined in the Mosaic covenant and in the Mosaic covenant we see that God works through Moses to promise the people of Israel, the nation that grew out of Abraham, right? Abraham's children developed into the nation of Israel. And God makes a promise in his covenant to give them three things. That Number one, he would give them the land. That's the first thing we're looking at, the promised land. The second thing he promised them was unity. That they, as long as they obeyed the covenant, he would keep them united as a nation. And the third thing he would give them is the sacrificial system, the the tabernacle, eventually the temple, right, where they could sacrifice animals and grain and all of these things to be forgiven of their sins and be made right right with God again to, uh, to get atonement for their sins. These three things were part of the Mosaic covenant. And we saw how in Deuteronomy chapter 28, it's a conditional covenant. If the people of Israel were obedient to the covenant and followed it, they would get those three things. If they were disobedient, they would lose those three things. And so this is why this land deed is so important to John. And John begins to weep because he wants to know what's going to happen to the land deed. It's in God's right hand, but no one can open it. And then John goes through what is a pattern we will see throughout the book of Revelation. John will be told one thing, He'll hear one thing then he will see another the first thing that he is told look here comes the lion of judah that the lion of judah is worthy to open the scrolls but what john sees is not a lion he sees a lamb that was slaughtered a lamb that was slain And this lamb is fantastical it has seven horns and seven eyes and we talked about what those symbolize those symbolize horns symbolize authority Jesus has seven horns on his head that means he has full and total authority he has seven eyes which means he sees in totality he sees everything he sees fullness right everything in its fullness and he is worthy now the only person that can open a scroll that has been sealed by a government official is someone with the same level of authority. And this is really important, because like we also discussed in our last episode on Revelation, that many people throughout history have tried to make claims that Jesus was not God, that Jesus never claimed to be divine, that his disciples made that up in the Jewish faith and the Muslim faith, they both believe you know, that Jesus was a good teacher. Islam says that Jesus was a good prophet that worked miracles, but nobody outside of Christianity would say that Jesus was God, right? Some other faiths may say he was an avatar or one you know, form, a physical form of a God. But Christianity says, no, no, he is the same God. Like there's one God, and Jesus is the physical representation of him. Jesus has equal authority with God the Father. That's why he can open the scroll. That's why John is told in chapter 5 to stop crying because the lamb, the Lion of Judah, who's also the lamb, is worthy to open it. And at the end of chapter 5, we see that the living beings and the elders, the divine council, worship Jesus and celebrate him. And that's where we pick up that they, they sing songs of worship to declare his worthiness. And this presents, in a New Testament passage, one of numerous times where Jesus is made equal with God, that he has the same authority as God the Father. That's why he's able to open the scroll. And so this is where we pick up in Revelation chapter 6, and hopefully you're following along with me at this point. We'll pick up in verse 1. And John says this As I watched, the Lamb broke the first of the seven seals on the scroll. Then I heard one of the four living beings say with a voice like thunder, Come. And I looked up and saw a white horse standing there. Its rider carried a bow, and a crown was placed on his head. He rode out to win many battles and gain the victory. So as John watches, the Lamb opens the scroll of the land deed of Israel, the promised land. The first seal, when it's broken out of it, he's, he's told to come. So John is going to stop paying attention to heaven and start looking back at earth. He's told to come, to look elsewhere. And on the earth, this first rider shows up. These are the four horsemen of the apocalypse we're going to look at. And you've probably heard that before, but most of the time, this idea of the four horsemen of the apocalypse are the you know. The idea that an apocalypse is the destruction of the world, that these four riders will come to herald in the destruction of the world or the planet. But that's not what an apocalypse is. An apocalypse is a revealing, it's an uncovering, it's showing you what's hidden. That revelation is literally a revelation, that we are getting a revealing of what's going to happen in John's time. John is watching this, and these are the things that are happening soon. We saw that in the beginning. John was told these events will happen soon. They would happen in his lifetime. He said that every eye will see the judgment of Jesus, that Jesus will come in judgment. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. That means that this had to happen during the time that those people were still alive. So this would have had to have been in the first century AD. Now, we also looked at, in our previous episodes, the internal evidence and the extra-biblical evidence that supports an earlier dating of the New Testament. I believe the evidence points to, and we discussed this again, this is just a review, that the New Testament was completely written before AD 70 that none of the writers of the New Testament write about the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 by the Romans. That the Jewish revolt happens. There's two Jewish revolts that happen. The first one happens uh, as a response to the Roman government imposing heavy taxes on the nation of Israel, and of course all of Rome, but specifically on Israel, and they re- revolt, and the emperor, future emperor, he's the general at the time, Titus, leads the Roman army into Jerusalem, lays siege to it, and then eventually destroys it all. That's why Jesus said in the Olivet discourse, not one stone would be left on top of another. And since nobody in the New Testament writes about that prophecy that Jesus gave coming true, it's a very strong indicator that all of this was written before 70 AD. So let's go back to John's vision. John sees a rider on a white horse. Why does white matter? Well, these are all symbols, right? Who rides a white horse in this culture of the day? The king does. Kings rode on white horses. This is confirmed with the idea that we see that a crown was placed on his head. This is a king. This is a ruler that has come on the scene. He has a bow and he wins many battles and gains victories. Now, who is the king that comes on the scene at this point in history in John's lifetime while John was in prison? That would be Nero. Nero was the one who had John sent to the island of Patmos. So as this emperor comes up to play into, into the world history, we have to see that this is this is Nero. What's another evidence that this is Nero? Well, this king, this rider on a white horse, has a bow, but no arrows. It just says he has a bow. How is this king able to use a bow with no arrows to win many battles and gain victory? Nero was the first in the line of Caesars to be a king that was not a warrior king. Nero was not a soldier. All of the other Caesars, the emperors, up until this point were also soldiers, and it's a very common thing, right? Caesar Augustus, right? Julius Caesar, these were military men, but Nero was not. Nero did not ride into battle. He was the king, and he won the battles, but he did not fight them. His armies did, and so this fits Nero perfectly. That Nero would be the king, the rider on the white horse with a crown, with a bow, but no arrows, who wins many victories. That makes sense. We look at our timeline of history, and this would be the person that's the king at the time. And this is all fitting the symbols, that Nero won many victories, but he did not fight them himself. He used used his, his military To fight the battles for him. Now, we need to understand that Nero reigned from 54 AD to 68 AD. That fits our timeline. During this time, the first Jewish revolt happens. The first Jewish revolt was from 66 AD to 70 AD, so Nero would have reigned during most of this revolt, or at least the first bit of it, right? He would have been the one that helped put it down. And so Nero conducts numerous military campaigns during his time as Caesar, and he wins many victories. Nero also did something that no emperor had really done. Nero was the first to bring massive, large-scale persecution on Christians, on the church. Up until this point, The church had largely been connected with the Jewish faith and had gotten some security from that. You see, Rome respected and honored any religion that was older than it was, and Judaism was. So up until this point in history, Jews had largely been able to live in peace, that no matter who was emperor, they really didn't care. The average Jew could care less who was Caesar, as long as they paid their taxes. They got to live a normal life, to worship their God, to go to synagogue, to be part of the community, and live a traditional life. To go to the temple and offer their sacrifices, all of these things. But Nero did something different. Not only did Nero persecute the Christians, Nero also used the Christians as scapegoats. That Nero burned, and most of the scholars agree, he set on fire and well over a third of Rome burned down, and he blamed the Christians for it. Now, this was one of many things that Nero did. Nero hated Christians so much, he would have them impaled while they were still alive after they had been dipped in hot tar and then set on fire to light the roadways. That persecution, and we talked about this, this was a universal mandate for persecution, but the waves of persecution were largely local. The entire Roman Empire did not persecute Christians all at one time, but it was still illegal to be a Christian, and we talked about that earlier, so I won't go down that road too far, but this is an important point where, because of Nero's extravagant lifestyle, his military campaigns, and his massive spending on projects, he had to increase his taxes. One of the things that Nero is famous for is he built the Colossus. This was a statue made of bronze of himself that was so large, it was bigger than the Statue of Liberty. That's a massive bronze statue, and people were forced to worship it. If they did not, they would be punished. And he put this statue in front of the Colosseum. That's why the Colosseum is called the Colosseum. The Colossus, right? Colosseum, right? Colossus. They're connected. The amphitheater was renamed after that statue was built in front of it, and right? placed in front of it. And so Nero spent massive amounts of money on these projects, and on his military campaigns and his lavish lifestyle. To finance all of this, he had to increase the taxes. This made the Jewish people revolt. And for the first time, we see that the Jews now are being treated badly by Rome and a military uprising happens. And we know that this comes to a head in 70 AD. So Rome, so Nero is important. Nero fits this bill. Uh, he fits this, this, this description. So let's keep going in verse 3. Verse 3 says, When the Lamb broke the second seal, I heard a second living being say, Come. Then another horse appeared, a red one. Its rider was given a mighty sword and the authority to take peace from the earth. And there was war and slaughter everywhere. Now, once again, we have to stay out of the temptation to read this like it was written today. We have to go back into the mindset of the writer and the reader at the time it was written. And we talked about this before, we have to say, what was the earth to the reader and the writer of this apocalypse? That would be the Roman empire. In the mind of John and his audience, Rome owned the entire world. And so as John talks about war, coming and and, and taking peace from the earth, this is all focused on Israel and Rome, right? This is how Rome is taking the peace away from Israel. Like we just talked about, Israel had lived for many, many years and decades in peace under the Roman Empire. They had, as long as they paid their taxes, they were left alone. But when the Jews started refusing to pay their taxes and they revolted, Rome sent the military in, Nero sent the armies in. Now what's the color of the Roman military? It's red. And we don't know 100% why Rome chose red to be the color of its armies, but all of its flags and banners and tunics right, were all red. Many people and scholars agree that, well, it's not universal, they think that, Um, They were using the color red because if you get injured in battle and you start bleeding, the enemy won't see it. And you might not notice it as well. If you're a soldier and you've got adrenaline pumping as you're in battle, if you get hurt and you don't see the blood on your uniform because your uniform is red, then you'll keep fighting. And so red is the color of the military. And that's exactly what happens, as we just talked about, in the Jewish revolts the military is sent to squash it, to end it. And there was slaughter everywhere in the mind of a Jewish person. This would be devastating. When you look at what the, the history books say about what happened in the, in the land of Israel and the promised land, right? And, got, and the, the land promised to the nation of Israel during this time, it was terrible. There were people that were, that were slaughtered. It, it, according to some um, writers like tacitus and josephus they were up to a million people in the city of jerusalem when it was taken by the emperor the future emperor titus who was general titus at the time and the, the romans were incredibly vicious in battle they did not care they saw the jews as lesser and they would rip babies out of pregnant women's bellies they would you know just absolutely massacre them this sword that was given to this rider symbolizes power and authority we talked about how swords were given to leaders in the roman government to symbolize their authority over life and death that the sword was used in battle and for execution this red horse symbolizes the roman military that is sent by Nero to take peace away from the land of Israel. Does that make sense? You following so far? So we've seen two horses of the four. Let's keep going. Verse five, when the lamb broke the third seal, I heard the third living being say, come. And I looked and I saw a black horse and its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice from among the four living beings saying, A loaf of wheat bread or three loaves of barley will cost a day's pay, and don't waste the olive oil and wine. Now, what does this symbolize? The first horse symbolized Nero. The second horse symbolized the the. the, the, Roman armies as they brought war and bloodshed to the land of Israel. What does this symbolize, this black horse? Well, black, right, is the symbol of, of, of rotting and destruction and death. And so as we look at this, what's going on at the time? Well, as the siege of Jerusalem happens, then the, the price of everything would go up. This is why this rider holds a pair of scales. Scales were used by merchants to weigh money. Money was not made perfectly like money is now. And if you were to go to a mint, machines press out money in perfect symmetry. All, all coins are made, to, every American coin is made to, to, to weigh the same amount. Every quarter should be the same size, diameter, dimensions, and weight. Every penny, every dime, every nickel, they all are made to weigh the same as their fellow coins, right? But these were made by hand back in the day. And so in order to ensure you were getting the right amount for something when you bought it in the market, then the merchant would have a set of scales And if they were honest scales, they would measure accurately. That's why one of the things that the law of Moses talks about is not having dishonest scales. They were meant to be fair and and, and equitable and balanced. And so scales were used in the marketplace. This makes sense because he says that the, the voice from the four living beings hollers out, a loaf of wheat bread or three loaves of barley will cost a day's pay. Now, I don't know if you can imagine the economy being so bad, that you would have to work all day to earn one loaf of bread. An entire day's work, let's say right now as of this recording, minimum wage in Florida where I live is $10 an hour. If you work an 8 hour day you'd earn $80. Could you imagine one loaf of bread costing you $80? How much inflation would have to happen? Right now you can go to the grocery store and get a loaf of bread for $1 to $2. It would have to be worth four to to eight times, you know, or 40 to 80 times what it would cost normally, right? To go from $1 to $80, right? No, that'd be, golly, that'd be 800 times, right? I'm terrible at math, forgive me. That's massive amounts of inflation. What happened in history for this to happen? Well, if we're following the pattern of history, Nero comes on the scene, he hates the Christians, begins to hate the Jews when they revolt, sends his military because the, the Jews are revolting, they won't pay taxes to, to these exorbitant taxes that Nero is charging to pay for his his lavish lifestyle, his, his building and his building projects and his military campaign. So they revolt. The second horse is the Roman military coming to lay siege to Jerusalem in, in, in the nation of Israel. and now we see in Jerusalem, and in the land of Israel, inflation happens on a massive scale, and he says, "And don't waste the olive oil and wine." Now, back in the day, you know, like during good times, olive oil was was used for all kinds of things. A person would put olive oil on their skin and hair every day, but now you don't want to waste it, right? You will, you've got to use it for cooking. You can you know, you can't waste wine. You've got to use that to drink because wine not only was something that would be shelf-stable for long periods of time, it could also be used to sanitize water. And so this would be something that was necessary. You can't waste it during a siege where you're running out of supplies. During the siege of Jerusalem, that's what this is pointing to. And as we see this unfold in history, we have seen a pattern of exactly what happened on, in our, on the pages of our history textbooks. Right? Nero comes along. Raises the taxes, the Jews revolt, the army comes in and lays siege to Jerusalem, and inflation goes through the roof. This death and loss and the the, the absolutely massive inflation that happens. And so during this revolt, man, incredible numbers of, of people were dying, incredible numbers of people were starving to death. There was a lack of supplies and resources, and people were forced to purchase things at exorbitant prices. This is the siege of Jerusalem. This is the pages of history coming into play. This is what God is using to open the land deed of of the promised land. All right, we've got a few more minutes. Let's cover this last horse, the fourth horse of the apocalypse. Verse 7. When the Lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the fourth living being say, Come. And I looked up and saw a horse whose color was pale green. Now, some translations call this pale as in like white, but this, the, the oldest translations, the earliest translations of the book of Revelation say it is a pale green. Its rider was named Death, and his companion was the Grave. These two were given authority over one fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and famine and disease and wild animals. What we see happening, remembering that the earth is the Roman Empire, during this time, because of the military campaigns that were happening, because of the massive travel that was happening, disease was spreading very quickly. You, You know, think about what happened when European settlers came to the new world to colonialize the americas they brought sicknesses with them sicknesses that they were immune to but the native americans were not and things like smallpox just ravaged and and, and yellow fever ravaged the native americans who were the, the indigenous peoples that were in the americas because they'd never come into contact with it And so as the military of Rome goes to fight the campaigns that Nero is sending them on, they're coming back with these sicknesses and plagues were going all throughout the known world. Now, the the horseman here named Death has the companion called Hades. And so this is symbolizing death and the grave where as as the Jews are rebelling, not only are they dying in massive amounts, but also plague is spreading across the Roman Empire. And we see this logical progression that sickness spreads during a siege, that Jerusalem is now under siege by the Roman military. They're bringing the sicknesses with them. And it's spreading throughout the people that are now trapped in the city of Jerusalem. According to history, the people that came were there. The reason there were so many people in Jerusalem when this happened, when Titus and his armies attacked Jerusalem and laid siege to it, it was right after a festival. And so people from all over the world would have come in carrying their germs, carrying their sicknesses, and as they spent all of this time in siege, Right For all of these months, the siege lasted from April of 70 A.D. to August of 70 A.D. They would have brought these sicknesses with them. So what does this fourth rider symbolize? He, and we're going to talk more about this as we go, but all of these sicknesses would have been you know, spreading throughout the people, and they would be dying in massive amounts. And one of the things that happens when you start having dead bodies is you all have more death coming. So we see of these four horsemen the logical progression of this apocalypse, this unveiling of what's going to happen to the land of Israel. John is told what happens. Nero comes on the scene. He's already there, right? And he begins to overtax the people. The Jews rebel. They end up getting siege, you know, by, by laid siege by General Titus and his armies, which increase Poverty and suffering and death and and plague and sickness. And all of this is happening. So we see it all making sense as we study through this together. So this is where we're going to have to stop for this session. Join us next time as we pick up and see what happens next. And I hope this is making sense. I hope this is blessing you. And I pray that this helps you make better sense of the scripture. So until next time, be blessed. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We pray that God uses it to inform your mind, improve your life, and ignite your heart with a renewed passion to impact others for the kingdom of God. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast so that you can continue along with us on this journey of restoration living.